Today's reading is Luke 16, 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to deep the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, good morning. My name is Brett Sweet. Happy to see you on Palm Sunday. Uh, this text is a reminder of the truths that are shouted on Palm Sunday, and that is that Jesus is king. Jesus is the boss, and we're here to celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bow uh, as citizens of his kingdom. Just uh, want to encourage you, this last week I was sitting on, uh, I sit on a council for the Inland Northwest Gospel Cooperative. Uh, which is churches in uh, Washington, eastern Washington, north Idaho, and western Montana. And we voted to give money to the first church plant of the Gospel Cooperative. And that's going to be a church plant from 4th Memorial Church to the South Hill that will launch in the fall of 2024. You'll hear more of that. Um, but just want to encourage you that the money you give to this church, we are using to advance the mission of the Gospel. Now let me pray briefly before we encounter this very difficult text. You're, you're going to think you went back in time because it's fire and brimstone today, folks. Let me pray. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, kindly make us for your son's sake. Amen. There was a Pew Research survey from 2014, I'll see if it's behind me, that showed a really interesting chart about belief in heaven and hell. 
the highest belief in heaven and hell was held by historically black congregations. 93% of those people believe in heaven. 82% believe in hell. Self-identifying evangelicals like us, 88% believe in heaven. 82% believe in hell. 40% of Jewish adults believe in heaven. 22% of them believe in hell. Surprisingly, 5% of atheists believe in heaven, and 3% of them believe in hell. I would have suspected that that was 0%. But maybe you've noticed the pattern, and this stretched across every religion, Buddhism, Hinduism, secularism. There was a consistency that transcended all those boundaries, and that is people who identified a certain way always believed more in heaven than in hell. Now, why is that? Because, for the most part, we all assume we're headed to heaven. We don't think we need to change. We think things are pretty good. But what if Jesus were a category on that chart? What would we see? We would see Jesus say, 100%, heaven is real. No surprise there. He's the Son of God. But then we would also see 100%, hell is real. Now, if there was a contest over the hardest things to talk about, hardest things to do with Christianity, there's a list. How does God's control of everything and man's responsibility fit together? It's a tough one. How is God good and yet allows evil? It's a challenge. But by far, when you boil it really down to the hardest thing in the Christian religion, the hardest thing is the doctrine of hell. It's the hardest thing. It's not, so since it's so hard, what happens is we don't think about it. We don't talk about it. And more and more Christians are choosing to not believe in it. But if Jesus really is the king who came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he really is the king over our lives, he tells us we need a divine rescue from hell. We're all headed there. We have to listen to what God incarnate says. And he tells us this clear and difficult truth. Repent or go to hell. Repent or go to hell. Those are our options. We repent of our sins or we go to hell. And so with so much confusion about hell, it makes sense for us to listen to the eternal one. And he's going to give us three facts in this text, three facts that make us 100% believe in hell. So fact number one, you'll see that your life now, it's not hell. Your life now is not hell. That's the first fact. Fact two, hell is a place of unceasing torment. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. And then fact three, very good news, hell can be avoided. Hell can be avoided. So three facts, we'll look at them again. And it's so helpful that the one who teaches us about hell is the one who delivers us from it. So keep that in your minds as we go through this. Jesus is going to teach us three, these three facts, and he's going to engage our imaginations. He's not just listing the facts. He's telling us a story to latch into our brains and help us see what's here. So let's look at fact number one. Fact number one, your life now is not hell. Your life now is not hell. Jesus uses this parable of the rich man and Lazarus to show us the contrasts between our lives here and now and life in eternity. And we see first that your life now is not hell 
when things are great. When things are great, your life now is not hell. Let's read verse 19, and we'll have the Bibles back in here next week if we don't have them around you. Verse 19, you see that your life now is not hell when things are great. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. This rich man is literally dressed and treated like a king. So where in this time period, the average person has a little bit of bread, a little bit of vegetables, maybe some meat on some special occasions, this guy lives like it's Thanksgiving. He shops at the best places. Everything is going great. And we'll see later on that there's gates around his house, which means he's got a big house. He's got fences around to keep out the riffraff, to keep out those depressing distractions. And every day he's feasting, he's protected. This man is rich. He's filthy rich. And surely he's that way because God blessed him. And surely that blessing is a sign that God is pleased with him, right? Right? Now we know for sure, like this man, that your life now is not hell when things are great. But let's keep reading. And secondly, notice that your life now is not hell, even when things are horrible. Your life now is not hell when things are horrible. Let's read verses 20 through 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This man is living a horrible life. Lazarus is basically immobile. When it says laid there, it means he was either placed there by someone else or thrown there. He can't move. And he's got these sores all over his body, physical pain, just the lightest touch You feel the sensitive nature when you've got those bruises and scrapes, like, oh, don't touch that. Just hurt that part of my arm or body. And along comes these dogs, and these these are not your lovable Labrador Retrievers or Jack Russell Terriers. These are more like coyotes or jackals wandering the streets, coming up with their rough tongues, trying to basically eat this guy alive, licking his sores. If anyone could say, we would think, that saying that we've heard, my life is hell. I'm, my life is a living hell right now. It seems like Lazarus could say that. But he doesn't. Because as horrible as his life is, or your life is, you will see that your life now is not hell. Now, some of you are here, and you are suffering immensely. You are living in pain like Lazarus. You have been abused, or you're poor, or you're fighting addiction. You've got PTSD, whatever, I don't know. But what's interesting is this is the only parable where Jesus names somebody. And I want you to know Jesus sees your suffering, and he knows your name. He knows you. He cares for you. And one of the ways he cares for you is by putting things in perspective. He's not ignoring you. You may feel miserable now, but your life is not hell. So how do I know that? 
How does Jesus tell us that? That brings us to fact two. Remember, there's three facts, and we need to remember the one who teaches us about hell is the one who delivers us from it. So fact two, hell is a place of unceasing torment. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. Unceasing torment. We say, we say we want good to triumph over evil. We say that. But then sometimes we encounter what the king is saying and we hear how he's doing it. There's really only two options at the cross in the substitute as a substitute for sinners or in hell, and we don't like it so much. So maybe we don't really want good to triumph over evil. We get a little uncomfortable when we hear about how that might look. So let's look at two words, unceasing and torment. We're going to look at them in reverse order. Notice first that hell is torment. Hell is torment. Let's read verses 22 through 25. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, could say my child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The words in those verses, Hades, traditionally translated hell, torment, flame, anguish. And this is not just the rich man being dramatic, folks. Because Abraham, who's really speaking for God here, uses that same language. He uses that word anguish, torment. Even one little drop of water would help. So many of us relate to to God like children relate to their parents. Like, Mom, Dad, look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm climbing the tree. Isn't it amazing? We, we think that way with God. We're like, God, I hope you're watching me. Look at me. And what we realize is that God is watching us. But since he's holy, he is not always pleased with what he sees. Notice the rich man. He knows Lazarus' name. He cannot plead ignorance to this poor man's suffering. But he still views Lazarus as existing for him. See, he spent his whole life practicing for this, living for himself. And he sees Lazarus up there. He, he still only cares about his comfort. And the tables have turned. Lazarus was at his gate, no doubt crying, have mercy on me. As we see elsewhere in the Gospels, other people. Have mercy on me. The tables have turned. The rich man says, Lazarus, Abraham, have mercy on me. But there's no mercy to give now. It's too late. There's no mercy to get. All is torment. Hell is a place of unceasing torment. Hell is torment, torment, and perhaps worst of all, hell is unceasing. Hell is unceasing. Look at verse 26. It hints to 
other things Jesus says, showing that hell goes on forever. Verse 26, and besides all of this, this is Abraham who's representing God in a sense here, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. None may cross from there to us. There is no exit. There is no end. Hell is unceasing. And it's significant that elsewhere, for those of us who are more inclined to believe in heaven, the same word that describes everlasting and eternal regarding heaven and life, same word for hell. It's unceasing torment. There's been this growing teaching in churches called annihilationism. That what happens when unbelievers die, they are annihilated. They cease to exist. Or, you know, maybe they'll say, there, maybe there's something like hell for a few thousand years, few million years, but then annihilated. No more. Their existence will be wiped off the map. But hell is real. Jesus says there's no way out. So if you walk into a growing number of those churches that deny hell, what will happen is you'll walk in and you'll listen to the announcements, kind of like our church has. You'll stand through the singing. You'll appreciate some of the songs. You'll close your eyes during the praying. And then you might hear someone preaching this text. You might hear something like this. Now, now obviously, folks, this is a parable we're not to take this language too seriously. We cannot believe that people in heaven can talk to people in hell. So we should just kind of ignore that. Obviously, Jesus is using symbolic language. It's not really flame. It's not really torment. That's just symbolism. Now, I might agree a little bit about pressing the details of any parable too far. I don't know that this idea of being able to talk from one place to the other exists. I would probably say not. I don't think every detail is meant to be pushed that clear or that hard, but I would ask this question as we talk about symbolism. What is more serious? Which is greater, the symbol or the reality the symbol represents? There's a dead and lifeless flag that hangs outside of my neighbor's home. It symbolizes a nation that is alive, where there's real people who are thinking and acting and breathing that inhabit that place, surely the symbol is not greater than the reality. Or those of us who choose to wear crosses around our necks or as earrings or on t-shirts, surely the cross around our neck is not greater than the actual reality that Jesus died as a substitute for sinners to bring us to God. That symbol can't be greater than the reality. Or perhaps when you're really hungry and you go to a restaurant and they hand you a menu, you don't look at the menu and go, no, I don't need any food. I've got the menu. Thank you. There's the words here that tell me about the food. Surely the actual food has got to be greater than the words on the menu. Well, there's some bad restaurants out there, but maybe not. So, but for the most part, you get what I'm saying. Food can nourish you. Words on a page cannot if it's just a menu. You make the little symbolic, I love you, with your fingers in sign language. 
wonderful symbol. But that can't be greater than having somebody come be with you when you're suffering, hold you when you're sad, listen to you, really love you. The reality is always greater than the symbol. And in this case, that means it's much worse, which means hell is unceasing torment. And there's people there right now, including people I love. The Bible tells us that we are children of wrath following the devil at enmity. That's war with God. Hell is a place where we'd fit right in. Flames, anguish, torment, unceasing. I really don't like to swim. It's one of my least favorite things to do, but I like to float. Uh, a couple of times... When I was a kid, my, my friend's dad would take us up near the Canadian border and we would float down on inner tubes down the Kettle River. And it was always kind of fun, but there's always a place where you had to get out. You had to get out. You're floating down one way. And what would happen is if you didn't get out, there were rapids down below. And your little inner tube probably wouldn't handle those so well. Now, my guess is, as I've seen those rapids, especially during the late summer, probably we would, we would survive those. We might get a little beat up, but probably survive. But then, from the Kettle River, you then enter Lake Roosevelt, this massive reservoir of the Columbia River. And you would probably be okay on your inner tube if the weather was nice. I mean, it's very deep water. If you fell off, you might be in trouble. But the problem is, is sooner or later, you got to get out because as you go downstream, you bump into Grand Coulee Dam. You don't make it through Grand Coulee Dam on an inner tube and survive. You've got to get out. You've got to get out and change directions. You get sucked through that. You don't survive. If we wanted to survive, we had to get out when we were floating the river. We have to change the direction we're going. There must be a change. Jesus believes in hell. He tells us it's real. He tells us some facts. Fact one, your life now is not hell. Fact two, Hell is a place of unceasing torment, and now the best news you will hear, hell can be avoided. That's fact three. Hell can be avoided. And here's why Christians should be the most humble people on earth. You are a Christian because you rely on Jesus, and the reason you rely on Jesus is because deep down, you know you deserve hell. That's why you should be humble. There's this tendency in advertising to say, you earned this. You earned this. Take, you know, take your break. Treat yourself. Christians would say, well, there is one thing I've earned. Unceasing torment. Hell's the only thing a human can really say they've earned. But hell can be avoided. So we'll do three things since hell can be avoided. We warn. Since hell can be avoided, we warn. Let's read verses 27 through 28. And he said, that's the rich man, then I beg you, Father, to send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. This man wanted to warn his family. The word for warn here can mean testify or protest solemnly or admonish. But notice that he's still kind of self-centered. 
This is kind of him at his best, and he's still only thinking about his family, his brothers. When in the whole Old Testament, the poor were always called your brothers. He wasn't looking out for them. The rich man neglected these brothers for years. He's only living for himself, looking out for himself, using his money for himself. Hell is real, but it can be avoided. Abraham and Lazarus are proof that it can be avoided. So we warn others. That's one of the reasons Jesus speaks this parable. It wasn't like, you know, said some hard things about divorce and remarriage. Let's just keep going. Talk about some hard things. No, Jesus is loving people. He's warning So we warn others. That's why Jesus does this. There's rapids ahead. There's a dam ahead. Be warned. Your inner tube won't help you. Get out. Change directions. Your religious duties won't save you. Your comfort in this life is not a sign that you will be approved by God. Avoid hell. Hell can be avoided. That's good news. Amen? Since hell can be avoided, we warn. Also notice this, hell can be avoided, so we heed God's word. We listen to God's word. If you want to avoid hell, you've got to listen to God's word. Let's read verses 29 through 31. This is not me talking, this is Jesus. But Abraham said, and remember Abraham is speaking kind of as God's prophet here, representative. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus shows us something very interesting here. People will believe what they want to believe. They will persist in suppressing the truth of God's word. Now, these are amazing words, Jesus tells us. He says that there's power for people to be converted. And that power is not in apologetics. And I love apologetics. I was telling somebody recently, if you know, I was going to get my PhD, I think I'd get into apologetics. That's not where Jesus says the power is, to convince people to believe. Jesus says the power is not in your supernatural experiences. We hear stories of people who who have visions of heaven or visions of angels, things like that. Jesus says, actually, that's not where the power is to help people believe. The power is in the word of God. The word is greater than your experiences or your apologetics, as important as both those things are. If you want to avoid hell, you listen to God's word. And Jesus is saying that Moses and the prophets which is slang for the Old Testament, they're enough. They're enough. Because they point us to Jesus, our Savior. In John 5, Jesus says, hey, you search the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, thinking you'd find life there, but it's they that bear witness about me. Luke 24, resurrection. We're going to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which you do every week, but for Easter Sunday, road to Emmaus. Look at the scriptures. They're about me. Had to be. So your Bible is enough. Listen to what it says. Kids, teenagers, if the Bible won't convince you, nothing will. So when mom and dad read the Bible to you, 
They're loving you. If you're going to share your faith like Des did, the people around you, don't shy away from using Scripture. Say, oh, you know, like, I, they're not Christians, so we won't bring up the Bible. We'll just argue, like, philosophically. Okay. But don't be afraid to use Scripture. That's where the power is. That's what will really help people believe. Hell can be avoided. So we warn, and the key to that warning comes from God's Word. If God's voice isn't enough to convince people to stop drifting towards hell, we should recognize it's a miracle that we've listened to him. So hell can be avoided. And the last thing about hell, since hell can be avoided, we repent. So we repent. Look at verse 30. And he, that's the rich man, said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man recognizes that the key to avoiding hell is repentance. It's repenting. Now, repentance, repenting is just a Christianese word. It's a biblical word. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. It's doing a U-turn. It's doing an about face while you're marching, turning the other direction. It's getting out of the river before it's too late and going back upriver. You're floating down the river, though the problem is this. You can't really go the opposite direction in your own power. I've watched people try on their inner tubes. The inner tube with the beer cooler got loose. Now they want to get there as fast as they can, but they can't get up there. Now I mentioned that Lazarus is the only time someone in a parable is named. I think the fact that we can't go in the opposite direction on our own power has something to do with why Lazarus' name here. I don't want to press this too far, but the name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. The rich man had his money and his status and his comfort and his health and his relationships to help did not help. Lazarus had none of those things, but he had God. He had Jesus. He couldn't even move, but he has God as his help. Change of direction under God's power, God's help. He has God to help, and you do too. I read a recent article of several people explaining why they left organized religion. Let me read two of them. They're short that express the viewpoints of many people around us, or maybe some of you here this morning, whether they tell this to our faces or not. Example one, I left the church after multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. I saw that the people we were fighting there did it because their God told them they had a duty to. I saw things happen that no human should ever have to imagine. Some of you have seen those things. And people in the U.S. told me it was okay. Because the Christian God said that they were all going to hell anyhow. I can't fathom why any sane person would, dis would subscribe to any religion that has these kinds of beliefs. It sickens me. Example two. Right after the 2004 tsunami occurred, I was visiting my parents' church. When the pastor started crying about all the victims being in hell, it broke me. Just because they were of a different religion, it was assumed they were in hell. I walked away from the church guilt-free. Now, these two 
examples are slightly different, but they cut to the same core, don't they? Is hell real? And do people outside of Christ go there? And Jesus says right here, there is a direct connection between heeding God's word, which tells us that we must trust Jesus, and going to hell. So those people who left organized religion over the doctrine of hell are just flat out wrong. Jesus says that if you're not heeding God's word, you're going to hell. If you don't care how, what, about what the Bible says, that Jesus says it means hell is your future. Believe me when I say this is not the most fun thing to talk about. But I'm trying to heed God's word myself. I'm trying to avoid being a hypocrite. And look at the specifics of why this rich man goes to hell. It's all rooted in living for himself. It's all focusing on himself, especially in how he uses his money, which is a key theme in Luke. He's always looking out for number one, the best food, feasting sumptuously, the finest clothing, outerwear, silk underwear, he's got it all. Food and comfort, not caring about those around him, allowing people to suffer, doing nothing to help, not even giving Lazarus some scraps. And Abraham, who is speaking for God here in verse 25, says, this is perfectly just. Perfectly just for such a man to be in hell, this place of unceasing torment. We all want justice, don't we? We all want evil punished, but, oh, maybe, maybe not our evil, or maybe not that kind of evil. We're kind of okay with that, Jesus. Like, yeah, it's okay. It seems a little harsh. But deep down, we know we don't really want people getting away with things. But it's tempting to do away with hell. But don't do it. Don't do it. It's hard to think about strangers who don't know Jesus in hell. That's why we evangelize and do missions. It's hard to think about our loved ones in hell. But hell does something to us. It changes us. It changes the ways we live. And here's why hell is such good news. It shows us how deep Jesus' love is for us. We weren't just rescued from a little head cold. My daughter Ren is at home with a head cold right now. I feel bad for her. But that's not just what Jesus rescued us from. Jesus didn't just rescue us from the sleazy boss who we can't stand. Jesus rescued us from unceasing torment. That's much better news. That's a level of love we've never seen anywhere else. We'll never see. Jesus says there's no lengths he won't go to in his love for you. And look, look how bad, look at what you deserve. He knows it. He knows it and he still rescues you, still loves you. Jesus saw, says that the law and the prophets spoke about him. Jesus says in Luke 24 that 
the resurrected Jesus says he had to. He had to be crucified. He had to be raised from the dead. He had to suffer and die. He must. That's what the Bible is teaching us about. And the one who's teaching us about hell here tells us that he's willing to go through that on the cross for you and for me. He took the judgment we deserve, exhausted God's wrath for our sins. So heed the warning today. Repent today. Change directions today. Trust Jesus today. Believe in him today. Don't trust that you'll get help from somewhere else. Speak Lazarus's name to Jesus. Say, God is my help. It's my only help. Jesus, save me. That's why I can repent and avoid hell. And the way, that's why we need Jesus to come and die for us. Because we need God to help. We can't do it. Salvation is a gift. It's an open invitation. Accept the gift. There's no reason for you to go to hell today. Trust Jesus. It can be avoided. The reality is there's truly nobody in hell who doesn't want to be there. They said, Jesus, you're king. I'm an American. We don't like kings. We send them back to England. Jesus says, okay, you get life away from the king then. But the king is the king who loves you. Unceasing torment. They just didn't know what they were asking for. Now, we're called to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. So here's some ways we apply this. First, most obviously, repent yourself. Don't think this sermon, don't sit here and say, you know, I really hope my kids are listening to this. Or I really wish grandpa were here this week. You, me, let's repent. Let the way you use your wealth be your thermometer. Luke wants us to see that in his teaching. How do you use your wealth? For the good of others or merely for yourself? Now, it's not about money itself because Abraham was rich. He's in heaven. But it's about your heart. Secondly, seek the good of others. The biggest way you do this is to evangelize people and re-evangelize people. So Des talking about sharing the gospel multiple times with his friend, good. That's the best way you love your neighbor. Commit to not going to heaven alone. A church that doesn't evangelize, by the way, zombie church. Looks like it's alive, dead. Talk about hell. Talk about Jesus. Seek the good of others in other ways, too. Volunteer at Maddie's place. Hold babies that are going through withdrawals because their mom, moms were hooked on drugs. Do that at the NICU. Volunteer at UGM and treat, teach trustworthy ex-convicts a trade that they'll be able to use to provide for themselves. Give generously to those around you. Care for others who have needs like Lazarus. You can't do everything. Don't try to be their savior. But love them. Third, do not compromise this doctrine. 
Don't compromise on it. To do so is to build a different Jesus than the one who actually saves. The Jesus in the Bible is the only one who saves. If we try to reform him into our own image, we get someone who won't save. Only the real Jesus can save you. If you don't, you end up with some sort of like inflatable doll or mannequin or something weird, and it won't help you. You will be tempted to do this. People will say, so you're telling me all those uh, people who practice Shintoism in Tokyo that Seda's not able to reach are going to hell? Really? You'd be like, they need to hear God's word. They need to repent. They need to trust Jesus. So pray for our church that we wouldn't compromise on this doctrine. Hell is a place of unceasing torment for those outside of Christ. If that's you today, I want to talk to you and I want to help you see the door is open. Hell can be avoided. Fourth, be humble and thankful. We should have woken up in hell this morning. But God sustained our lives with great patience and love, giving us chances to trust Him, repent of sins. He sent people to teach us God's Word. Look at the love He has for us. He sent the Spirit into our hearts so that we would believe and be saved. We have, by the way, in America, in the 21st century, way more in common with the rich man than we do with Lazarus. Way more in common. So we, need, we should be humble and thankful. So believe what Jesus believed about hell this morning. 100%. Heaven is real. Hell is real. Remember that Jesus, the one who teaches us about hell, is the one who delivers us from it. So repent and keep repenting every day of your life. See the sin. Confess it to Jesus. See that he died for it. He accepts you on his merits. Turn away from it. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you love us enough to say hard things to us. We know deep down that that's love. We know that. Would you help us to believe? And Lord, we pray that your word would have the power you say it has, that we would believe. And Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would not be the sort of people who would say, unless I see someone raised from the dead, I won't believe the word. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus has been raised. We're thankful that the word is enough. We're thankful that we're free from hell. Amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read from Matthew's Gospel. She'll be preaching from this Good Friday and Easter. Um, let me read from verse 26 and down. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, well, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus says, there's symbolism here. There's bread and there's wine. But guess what? The reality is even greater than the symbol. It's not just a little bite of bread or a little drink of wine or grape juice. It's a picture of the, symbol, of the reality 
of Jesus dying for us so that we could be forgiven. We deserve hell, but we've been forgiven. We deserve the penalty in that prison. We've been exonerated. So if you're here and you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We want you to come forward repenting of sin, rejoicing that this symbol represents a reality that you've been forgiven and that you're surrounded by people who believe the same thing as you. So this is for you. You don't need to be a member here, um, but if you've put your faith in Christ, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask that you stay in your seat. And the reason why is we value your honesty much more than your appearance. So we would rather you say, you know, I'm not quite convinced of this, Jesus, yet. That's okay. Keep coming back. Keep asking questions. But for now, we'd ask that you just stay in your seat. Let the people walk by you. Um, and we, We're not going to avoid you afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. Um, we'll have elders and wives. My wife's at home with a sick child. But elders and wives on stage to pray for you. If you need prayer for anything, it'd be our honor to do that. And we'll, we'll be singing in the meantime. There'll be two rows down the aisle here. You'll, you'll catch on. Um, you can drop the cups and the garbage cans. I want to give us just a moment to listen to what God is saying to us, and then I'll call you forward um, as we all come forward as a sign of our repentance.